For many people in the environmental movement, Rachel Carson's book Silent Spring, released on September 27, 1962, was the pivotal moment in their lives in which they made protecting the environment their focus and career. Today we are celebrating the 54th anniversary of Silent Spring and look at what we have learned since the 1960s and what still is to be accomplished in our work of saving the planet, or rather, of saving ourselves. Silent Spring, the legacy of Rachel Carson. That's our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. After much pressure and scrutiny from chemical companies and even personal threats, Rachel Carson nevertheless released her book Silent Spring in September of 1962. It shook the public and brought the environmental world into focus, for many people really for the first time on that level. Environmental protection became a real ongoing topic, and what followed was perhaps the largest environmental movement the world had ever seen including legislative action in form of the founding of the EPA, some 10 years later, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the signing of the Environmental Protection Act into law, among many other laws that have followed since. What was Rachel Carson's message, and is it still true today? What have we learned, and what are we still learning about the interconnected world of action and responsibility of pollutants and their impact on all of life? Today, I'm joined by a woman who has made studying Rachel Carson her career in this hour of an organic conversation, Silent Spring, the legacy of Rachel Carson. This show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and the culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria, from caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or any other preservative to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. Silent Spring, the legacy of Rachel Carson. That's our topic in this hour here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. That and more when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned.
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our topic in this hour is Silent Spring, the legacy of Rachel Carson, the book that changed the environmental movement or actually started it, which was released on September 27th, 1962. And now with me is Dr. Linda Lear, biographer, historian, and founder of rachelcarson.org. If we have you with us. We do. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, of course, you you know Rachel Carson. You have made studying her life your your life. <laughs> you have released several books on Rachel Carson's work, from the Sense of Wonder, Silent Spring, of course, the 40th anniversary edition, Lost Woods, Witness for Nature, um, the most recent one. So we are honored to have you on for this 54th anniversary of Silent Spring, which really for many people kicking off the modern environmental movement as we know it and under much scrutiny uh, has changed uh, many people's lives and actually made them environmentalists so much so that I know dozens of people who have started to make environmental protection their focus and career. When you studied Rachel Carson, what motivated you to pick that topic? Why why Rachel Carson? Why Silent Spring? Why that work? Well, it's a, that's a very good question, because at the time, which was in the uh, mid-1990s, I was teaching a, a class at the university on uh, American environmental history, and when I got to Silent Spring and Rachel Carson, my students had nothing to read about her, and they found Silent Spring tough going, at least back then they did. Um, and so I, I looked around for something about Carson, and there wasn't anything. So I therefore set out to write a classroom biography of her, um, because I thought it was important, and that turned into a, a major biography and a long career of trying to, to tell the world about who Rachel Carson was and why she has changed our lives. And so from, from why you picked her, why did Rachel Carson, from your vantage point, and who would know better than you, now having studied her for years and years, what made her pick the environment? What was her motivation? Why was she so shocked or hurt by what she was well, finding? Well, Rachel was a, was a naturalist. She was a biologist, and she spent her working life, uh, a long career, at the U.S. Department of Interior as editor of, of the Fish and Wildlife Service. She... She was a biologist. She graduated from Johns Hopkins with a degree in zoology. Um, she had hoped to go on for a Ph.D., but the, the Depression came along, and there were no jobs for women in science, so she started writing. And she was a natural writer. So at, at, as her career moved on in government, she had opportunity to go and study the sea, and the sea became her passion. So... Rachel Carson made her initial fame writing three incredible books about the sea, um, the most famous being The Sea Around Us, which was published in 1951, and put Rachel Carson on the international map of, uh, of public voices in science. She really synthesized the whole of what we knew about the deep ocean after World War II in a way that the public could not only understand, but in a way that was beautiful and mesmerizing. The book just mm -hmm. uh, made her quite a celebrity. In fact, I contend it made her the most trusted voice in, in science in America by, by the mid-50s. 
which helped her with Silent Spring because there was much scrutiny, actually even threats to not have it be published. Is that is that true? Um, Silent Spring, yes. But that was when when uh, when the chemical companies found out that she was really into it. Yes, they hoped they could uh, manage to muzzle it. Yeah. What if if you look at her motivations and what is her message? and alarm meant to the world. If, if you look back to the early 60s with her three books on, on water, on the oceans, right. and then Silent Spring, what, what was she trying to tell us? Uh, she was trying to tell us that human beings and the natural world were of one piece, and that man, humankind, had acted as uh, the destroyer of nature, as the arbiter of nature, um, that nature was uh, something Separate. that that could be used and used up. And she was trying to, um, first of all, to tell us that we are a part of nature and that we had to, to jointly uh, get along. That's still the message that resounds from all of her work, is that we are in this together and we cannot control nature and, and we cannot abuse nature. And so, which is still the message today, I would think, right? What's, That's right. What, is she, what, what do you feel she was trying to achieve, that we accept the, the unity, the, you know, fight the separateness in our minds and, and embrace the unity and act upon it? Yes. She, she, she thought that, that, that the, uh, the end of the, by the end of the Second World War, you know, we had just done... Uh, exploded atomic bombs, and, and it seemed as though science could do absolutely anything that would produce miracles. Uh, Rachel was concerned about the arrogance of science and government officials who, who didn't stop and ask, was, was what they were doing in science right or good or worthy of the, the public's acceptance? She thought that we had acted arrogantly and that we were at least in... in many ways, um, presuming something that we should not presume, and that was that we could control nature for own, our own benefit. Our topic in this hour is Silent Spring, the legacy of Rachel Carson, and we are speaking with Dr. Linda Lear, biographer, historian, and founder of rachelcarson.org, who has studying Rachel Carson, made her career. She's the publisher of several books, five in total, including Rachel Carson, Witness for Nature, um, the, the biography and Lost Woods, the discovered writing of Rachel Carson. Linda, I do want to ask you, as a historian, having really dedicated your life to understanding Rachel Carson's, have you become an environmentalist by not just reading her work, but by studying her motivation? How has that changed your life? Oh, it's, 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 I think I was an environmentalist as, as, uh, as a student of history, because I was I chose as my field to study environmental history of the United States and indeed of the world. But uh, Carson has changed my life in that I look upon the natural world in a much a more unified way. I'm horrified by the kinds of ways the human beings have gone about making nature their, having dominion, if you will, over nature and thinking that we can chop down trees and pollute waters and spread toxins uh, everywhere, and still have life. How do you live with that? I know you're a historian and <laughs> biographer, and um, yeah. it was really clear when we invited you to be on the show that that's your expertise. But I would say for somebody who 
feels that deeply and has you know made Rachel Carson's work the center of your career, you are an environmentalist. How can we right. not? What, we, what we do we all, do about it? We all what are. What do we do about Rachel's message? Yeah. What, what do you, how do you live with that? How do you bring it in and what do you do about it? How do you see well, the destruction? The first in? is to recognize that contamination, toxic contamination of the globe is, is a fact of modern life. And we have failed utterly um, to stop it. Mm. Toxic contamination is, is in outer space. It's in our bodies. It's in the uh, mother's milk of every pregnant woman it's uh it's in the oceans it's in the arctic it's in the ice it's everywhere and we've failed at that and now we're failing um by make, by species extinction we are failing by allowing um toxic waste to accumulate by allowing global warming by uh all the things that we seem to be utterly unable to sort of curb our appetites to do and what do i do um, well, first of all, I, I do a lot of public speaking about Rachel, and I try to teach about Carson, and I, I have membership in a, a number of animal rights and environmental rights groups. I try to write about it whenever I'm asked to. I use my voice and Rachel's voice uh, through me to, to try and, and alert people to think about uh, the future, to think about what kind of a world we're leaving to our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and indeed if there will be a world as as we know it now yes and we we want to talk with you about the reactions you are getting you are a very <laughs> prolific speaker and writer and also teacher on this topic and i am really curious to hear how the next generation is taking on to the message of rachel carson and you uh, in this hour of an organic conversation when we come back stay tuned um, we'll be right back after the break we're speaking with dr linda lee a biographer historian and founder of rachel carson org about Silent Spring. It is the 54th anniversary of the release of that groundbreaking book, which started the modern environmental movement and awareness as we know it, Silent Spring, The Legacy of Rachel Carson. I'm Helge Helberg. This is an organic conversation. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Silent Spring, the legacy of Rachel Carson, our topic in this hour. And who better to talk to you if not Dr. Linda Lear, biographer, historian, and founder of rachelcarson.org. For more information, check out that web website, rachelcarson.org, and also lindalear.com. Biographer, historian, really somebody who has made the story of Rachel Carson and her work and her inspiration her own career. 
Linda, before the break, we were talking about you as a speaker, as a writer, as a teacher, Rachel Carson's words and your words still as relevant as 1960, 1962, when the book came out. Are we actually making progress in your view? I think we're, we're in some ways we are making progress. The, uh, it's easier to be full of doom and gloom because all around us are incidents like um, the mercury in, in the water in Flint, Michigan, and, you know, uh, the decimation of various species around the world, the fact that there could be no more ele elephants, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the younger generation at the college age generation is what I'm thinking of here, um, are aware that that there is there is global warming, that things are changing and that they have to to act differently. I also think even in this uh, rather silly political atmosphere that we're enduring right now, that Rachel Carson had a message against arrogance, human arrogance, and greed. Uh, she was very famous in several speeches in asking the public to say, to think about who speaks and why, um, to question, you know, for the public to ask questions and to, to ask questions of, you know, of oil companies, of, of uh, pipelines, of why are we doing this and who is benefiting from this activity? Is it the future? Is it the planet? Um, or is it someone or some company's uh, financial bottom line? That's one of her big messages, is to question authority, question, 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 and uh, stand up for what you believe in. How do you feel the younger generations are embracing that or accepting that? It's fascinating to me that a book this old, with all due respect, but that it's still <laughs> so applicable. Nothing really has changed. We have seen, you know, DDT was still allowed. It was banned in 72. And and we're still seeing offsprings of DDT in many new products, actually offsprings of DDT that are more toxic than DDT yeah. itself. Oh, the, the chemical companies were actually... Uh, told me uh, when when I was writing the book that they were really thought they were really glad that Rachel Carson published Silent Spring because ironically it focused so much attention on DDT that they were quite free to go about producing other more much more toxic chemicals. Um, the public doesn't understand that insects become resistant whatever chemical you put you're putting out there. The insect resistance is a fact of biology, and it will happen. I'm actually waiting for um, the government to suggest that we bring DDT back to combat the Zika virus. Uh, I don't know whether I'm right that that's going to happen, but I, wouldn't, I certainly won't be surprised if it does. But I think um, as the organic food movement has taken off, as, as people have become aware of what goes into their food and how it's produced, this has made a great, a great deal of difference in... Um, public consciousness, and in, certainly in the young people, so that they are more, more aware um, of what's in the environment and what we're doing to the environment. The, there was a recent case in South Carolina where yes. the government, again, without, without permission of the public, sprayed um, toxic chemicals on the coastline and wiped out almost an entire generation of bees. I mean, this is just a hideous... Uh, stupidity and a reenactment of exactly why Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. So, you know, we make progress on on one hand and we back up on the other. The EPA now has 
instead of uh, their list of toxic chemicals instead of running into the 20s and 30s now runs into the hundreds of thousands it's just Yeah, and you're talking about the recent spraying for Zika with the bees in South Carolina. There was um, a spraying of insecticides, an aerial spraying, actually, of insecticides. And right. not just was it not permitted yet, but there, it was not announced to the public beforehand so that nobody could get ready for it, bring their animals well, that's exactly in. exactly what happened, you know, in, in Rachel's time. And that's one of the reasons why she wrote the book. They were government and localities were aerial spraying with DDT for infestations of mosquitoes or spruce spudworm or whatever the, the insect pest happened to be. But I, I think it's interesting still that uh, though there are a lot of people who don't know who Rachel Carson was, and yet they know her message. Um, I used to get, uh, when I would go around to speak, I used to get the question, Rachel, who? But I don't get that so much anymore. However, I still get um, uh, a lot of hate mail. Um, because I'm the most visible proponent of Rachel's life and work, a lot of vicious hate mail, and most of it's directed um, about the lack of DDT um, against malaria in the third world, because uh, children are still dying there, and there are a lot of people who seem to believe that DDT would be indeed the savior of this, these children who are uh, subject to mosquitoes. It's, n it's a completely false notion. You know, there are... There are mosquitoes are not resistant or resistant to DDT, and it's long been that way. And any country where DDT has been sprayed in agricultural use, there's no further good to come from it. But it, the notion persists, and there are there are websites that are hate racial websites that are still talking about what a terrible baby killer she was. So it's a it's an uphill battle. Isn't it amazing in a way that you chose a book and a woman who in 1962 would create a body of work and, and in the three books before in the ocean, but in her life, in her relatively short life, would create a body of work that, or not long enough life at least, uh, would create right. a body of work that would 60 years later, 55 years later, still have people so aggravated or or fascinated by it and wherever you fall in the Rachel Carson camp has that much impact on society still today it's amazing it is amazing yes how do you explain that was she just extremely talented or did time and well and issues one, one and person one person once told me that that first of all it, it, it took a writer she she was an amazing writer and so you if you read her her sea books and you read her naturalist writing and even in Silent Spring, if you read The Fable for Tomorrow, it, it, it's elegant, elegant writing. Nobody except a writer of the kind of talent of Rachel Carson could make a bestseller out of chlorinated hydrocarbon pesticides. I mean, it's not exactly your best-selling topic, but nonetheless, Rachel, Rachel did that, and she did that, I think, by um, starting out that book with The Fable for Tomorrow, which just blew scientists out of the water. They just couldn't imagine that anybody would be taken seriously by starting a book about pesticides with, a, with an imaginary fable about a town. But Rachel did, and it, that really resonated with people. As part of... I'm actually so fascinated by this conversation, I forget to reset. Let me do that real quick. We are speaking with Dr. Linda Lear, biographer, historian, and founder of rachelcarson.org, who has made Rachel Carson's life and work 
her life and work. In this hour of an organic conversation, Silent Spring, the legacy of Rachel Carson, we're celebrating the 54th anniversary of the release of Silent Spring. Many actions did occur. Things have happened. We have seen the Endangered Species Act. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency was formed some eight years after the book came out. Lots has happened in society, in nonprofit work, and even in, in governmental agency work uh, as a direct offshoot of Rachel Carson's book and work. Uh, the EPA, of course, was formed '73. What other huge initiatives can you directly link and contribute to Rachel Carson? Or can we basically point to everything that has happened in the environmental movement because of that single book? Yes, I think I think it's I try to make the distinction that Rachel Carson didn't actually found the modern environmental movement because Earth Day and and the EPA and the, and the um, the banning of DDT didn't happen for eight to ten years after she died. Mm -hmm. But what she did was she stirred the pot, as I like to put it. She um, elevated our consciousness so that when um, people finally started to remember and to listen, and this is Cold War, this is post-war, um, finally sort of had enough, uh, I guess, affluence in a way to think about something other than, than where the next meal was coming from, that, and, and think of the, something else besides fighting the Cold War, then the environment began to, to take hold. And again, I, w I would point to the organic food movement and to the whole notion that crops had to be uh, changed. And so because pesticides were used in farmland, that was really something that, that she was vitally interested in. Your listeners may be interested to know that Rachel was a member of the Rodale um, mm -hmm. Institute. Yeah. She, she tried to um, support it, but she really couldn't, not only because she was you know very busy trying to, A, keep alive, and B, um, defend her work, because if she'd accepted organic, the organic food movement, the chemical companies would have said, aha, you see, this is a real kook. This lady is just nothing but a hysterical spinster. Mm -hmm. So she was not able to do that. Similarly, endangered species and the whole idea of extinction. Rachel um, testified against things like um, big tra uh, traps, steel traps uh, that would endanger and hurt and maim wild animals in the wild that weren't necessary. Um, but she couldn't come out with a whole lot of uh, political information about it because, sure. again, she was trying to defend her work um, against toxic chemical abuse. And, and so, even though she was, of course, had a big opinion about this, she needed to stay unbiased in that sense of affiliations. Exactly. exactly. And, of course, she's dying of cancer by the time that yes. the book comes out, and she doesn't want anybody to know that because, number one, people didn't talk about it back in those days, and number two, if the chemical companies had found out, they would have said, oh, well, this woman just is is uh, cranky and, and writing about her own illness, and she thinks that toxins uh, are carcinogens, and, sure. you know, she's, it's self-serving. It's self, self yeah, whatever the industry comes up with to, uh, of course, take somebody down. Right. I know it's impossible to 
to say or forecast and maybe even a dishonoring to try that. But I still want to ask the question, if Rachel Carson was still with us and would write today, how would her message be adjusted or what are you seeing having her sensitivity as part of your career? If you look at the world, how has the message changed and what are the most pressing issues that, that can be connected? Well, I, I think I'd like to say that Elizabeth Colbert's book last year, 2015, called The Sixth Extinction, mm -hmm. is being now called uh, A Second Silent Spring. I think there have been a panoply of, of writers and, and thinkers who are picking up Rachel's work on, on, on contamination of the total environment, of man's um, destruction of species, of, of wildlife, of water, uh, the whole notion of global warming. I think these are the, the things that Carson set in motion and that she that we we inherit from her and are still hearing about hmm. we're almost out of time but i do want to ask you what people can do we are celebrating for example the 100th anniversary of national parks in the united states i know they have some funding battles ahead to receive funding to keep those parks open. We already saw the temporary closure in recent years where staff couldn't open national parks because of, of, of funding hardships. Okay. If we look from the chemical world to the environmental world and, and really the environment at large of what is working, national parks being one place where we are protecting, actively protecting as much as we can, uh, perhaps the environmental beauty and diversity Uh, funding, of course, being critical. What else can people do, and how important are those natural places for you they're, and your they're work? Critically important, and what people can do is to 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 become more politically active, to write your congressman, to um, protest the the uh, the the lack of funding for for all these endangered, environmentally important communities. The Park Service can't keep the parks open and undesecrated if they don't have funding, and it's Congress who's blocking the funding. Um, uh, Defenders of Wildlife, just to name one organization, is doing an incredible job um, trying to help species extinction uh, slow down um, and to just do humane work. Um, there are countless organizations, and we can join them. We can support them. Um, And we can, we can be politically active and aware so that um, Flint, Michigan didn't need to happen. If, if, if we can uh, lift our voices and, and, and tell the, the powers that be that this, this lack of funding, this lack of care, this lack of care for our world, our, our Earth's surface is, is not acceptable. That's what we can do. In your work, um, speaking with with students, with youth, uh, how do you keep yourself motivated? Or in other words, what's the direct feedback you're getting in your work from people? The fact that people are still are, are, are still interested, the fact that we are still having a conversation about Rachel Carson and and toxins and global warming. I mean, if people would, I think if people would accept the fact that the that there is A problem of global warming that the planet is heating up and that this has huge ramifications for all of us for for human and non-human nature 
this is this is a, a recognition of a reality. And then, if you recognize that, then take up arms and do something about it. You know, don't don't continue to be part of the problem by just denying that it exists and it's somehow all going to go away. Is that how you stay motivated? How you do you are you hopeful? Yes, I am hopeful. I I, I have my periods of total despondency, but yes, I am hopeful because. Because I, 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 I think that people do care about life and the continuation of life. And so we do what little we can and hope for the best. Yeah, I'm hopeful. If people wanted to learn more about this, of course, they can pick up one of your many books that you wrote on Rachel Carson. You also speak quite a bit. Can people get in touch with you and request your presence at conferences? or how? Sure, Absolutely. I'm. Uh, I have a website. It's Linda at LindaLear.org. I mean .com. Sorry, Linda at LindaLear.com. And through the RachelCarson.org website, they can also get in touch with me. But I think it's important for people to, in the 54th, 55th anniversary of Simon Spring, to to read it, to remember who Rachel Carson was and why she sounded the alarm. And um, and I've seen young people galvanized by rereading it again. I'm speaking soon to a college uh, where the the freshmen have been required to read Silent Spring as a as their entry point in their studies and they're on fire they're they're really they they haven't read such a book so this is exciting and when we talk about such a book this is not an edited version this is the original copy that's, of of 1962 is, yeah. release that's right fascinating that again after 50 or you know almost nearly 60 years 55 years even the wording would not change if it was released today no it wouldn't it is it, as and it's beautifully it's beautifully stated and it exactly says exactly what we should be doing and that is dr linda lea biographer historian and founder of rachelcarson.org in this hour of an organic conversation focusing on the legacy of Rachel Carson and, of course, her work Silent Spring, which is celebrated this year in September as the 54th anniversary. Thank you so much, Linda, for making time for us today and for I'm, all I'm your... I'm honored to be on your program and I wish you all and all your listeners to um, think about the tomorrows that they want to have. Yes, and this show is actually listened to in 135 countries. Is there a translation of Silent Spring into other languages? Oh, there that is. It's been translated into many, many languages. I think the last count was something like 46 languages. Beautiful. So it is available. Yeah, great. Beautiful. Thank you for your work. Thank you for keeping that voice alive, yours and Rachel Carson's, and good luck to all of us. Thank you, and thank you Thanks. for the opportunity to reach your listeners. Our you. pleasure, indeed. <laughs> thank you, Linda. Take care. Bye. Bye. And again, that's Dr. Linda Lear. Her website is lindalear.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-L-E-A-R, lindalear.com. And of course, rachelcarson.org, also the website to get in touch with Dr. Linda Lear for speaking inquiries, etc. If you're interested in having her speak at one of your conferences coming up, if you're involved in that, the word and the work of Rachel Carson as applicable then as it is today, as applicable today as it was in 1962, unfortunately, but luckily we have that writing and that work. Congratulations, Rachel Carson, 
I'm Helge Helberg. This is an organic conversation. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. We're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our topic in this hour, Silent Spring, the legacy of Rachel Carson. Released, published in September of 1962. It is still one of the best environmental works out there and a must read for anyone interested in protecting the environment or just caring about the environment as we all should. We're staying with the topic of healthy fruits and vegetables, organic agriculture, the update from the produce dog directly, your consumer tip on how to buy, store, and perhaps what to do with local organic produce available right now at your grocery store this week, the hot items of the season. This is the season. This is what's in season. And with me, as always, I hope, is Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce, the voice of the San Francisco produce market, and really Mr. Organic. Earl, are you there? Hey, Helga. How are you doing? I am great. How are you? Yeah. You know, um, I think uh, if you want to extend your life and be uh, happy with it, uh, eat more fresh fruits and vegetables. We had so that? many shows in recent weeks <laughs> on that, on various variations of bone health and mental health and you name it. And really the, the one part was, yes, important organic, and if you can, and as important or even more important, produce, produce, produce. And of course, make yeah. sure it's organic when you can. But produce is really, without that, there's almost, it seems like it's impossible to have optimal health to deal and battle with everything that you have to in life. It's really the foundation of everything. We didn't know that when you went into business, right? No, no, we really didn't. You know, I mean, the fact is you want to put live stuff in your body. That's right. Yep. That's the deal. Life creates life. That's right. What's yeah. the item of the week? Well, you know, there's so many different ways to go this time of year. It's still <laughs> incredibly vibrant. But yes. what, I'm, what I'm thinking, I'm a, Christy's going to uh, take over the, uh, the phone here and talk about uh, one of our loves that we have at, at Earl's Organic, uh, but also very timely, I think, for everybody. So uh, Christy's going to get on right now. Okay. So hold, hold on one moment. Christy, and that's Christy Biddle, of course, Hello, uh, one Helga. of the buyers at Earl's Organic Produce. Uh, Christy, we have you back. Hey. Hello. Great to, nice I, to talk with you. <laughs> how are you? 
I'm great. Thanks. It's nice to have you back. We had you in the studio here. We talked about melons, and then you came back for avocados. And you're, of course, one of the buyers at Earl's Organic, specialized on uh, quite a few items. And what is the item of the week for us? Why is handing Earl the, the, the headset over to you, so to say? We are going to talk about avocados, um, which, as I mentioned when I was there last, Uh, it's a very unusual year for avocados, both with um, the California and the Mexican season. So, great. Okay. Um, some good stuff to share. Okay, wonderful. Well, you were mentioning then, like three weeks ago or so, that we were at the tail end of the California crop. And mm -hmm. you were saying, if I remember correctly, that the, because they are picked now really ripe, that the oil was ready to be eaten. In other words, if you buy a California, a dark skinned California avocado, don't wait for three days on your counter because the oil might turn rancid. It's that ripe. It's that ready. Exactly. N now, three weeks later, are we still seeing California or is this done? And now really all we, uh, yesterday actually was at the store and there was this huge display. It didn't say California or Mexican on the sticker, of course, of the avocado. Mm -hmm. It said it and it was bright green. And I remembered the show and I remembered what you were saying. Christy told me if it's bright green, it's no longer California and it's, it's Mexican and that behaves quite differently. What are we seeing now in the marketplace? Right, right. Um, so for the most part right now, what you're going to be seeing in the grocery stores is Mexican fruit. Uh, there may be small pockets. Um, you know, if you're lucky enough to be in Southern California or Central California along the coast and able to go to farmer's markets, there's still a little bit of production here and there from some growers and little microclimates with some production in the Santa Barbara area and Morro Bay. Um, but what's making it out to the grocery stores is essentially all Mexican fruit at this point. And so people shouldn't be deterred by a bright color and by really firm, firm fruit. The last Californians, the dark-skinned, were uh, you were hard-pressed to find a really uh, rock-solid one. They were already kind of ripening on the storefront, and now they're gone. That's why they're gone. They're no longer lasting. Um, right. How do you deal with Cal with uh, Mexican avocado at this moment? If you if you find them, um, it's hard to find one that is like yeah. soft and ripe. What do you do? Right. So generally, the Mexican fruit is, um, you're exactly right, Helga, it's going to have kind of a, a brighter green skin, um, not that dark color um, that we saw even with firm late-season California fruit. Um, and even as it ripens, some of the early Mexican fruit doesn't get as dark. Uh, the skin won't, you know, get as dark as we're used to seeing. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a few different cycles of the Mexican avocado season. Um, so we're just in the beginning of it. And what we've noticed is the Mexican fruit at this time of year is consistently inconsistent. <laughs> so if when you're buying the avocados at the store, I'd say keep a real close eye on them. Check them every day as they're kind of ripening on your counter because some of them, you know, a day or two can make a really big difference. And you'll go from a fairly Uh, bright skin, green avocado to something that's still fairly green in color, but the pressure will give significantly from day to day. And uh, it can be easy for that to kind of Go you know, over. miss the opportunity to really yeah. enjoy it at the right time. How would you ripen them at home? If you get them home, usually stores 
don't ripen well, they they put them out very firm, actually, and you need at least one or two or three or sometimes four days to get them. What is your trick for ripening them, them um, as the most in the most consistent way or or yeah, you know, round way possible? Yeah, uh, just putting them on your counter at home, really, you know, in a, a temperature where it's going to be about 60 to 65 degrees, it will ripen slowly, um, which, you know, is a great way if you want to maybe enjoy it in a couple days after you buy it. You can also put it in a brown paper bag, which will help to trap the gas and uh, ripen the fruit a little bit more evenly. So that's a nice tool if you want to speed up the process. Um, And then have you, have you yeah. ever added a banana to the bag to speed it up even more? I know bananas um, exude a gas. What is it called? Um, ethylene. Yeah, e ethylene. And yep. that really ripens any fruit really much, much, much more quickly. Have you done that with avocados? That's something one could do yeah. if you really want to eat it tomorrow and it's still rock hard? Yeah, you know, I have. Um, I've done that a little bit at home and we've experimented. We have a ripening program um, here at Earl's. So we're very in tune with how all of the fruit is, is um, performing at different times of year because mm -hmm. we're kind of ripening it here in our warehouse. And we have experimented a little bit with bananas. I would say that that does accelerate the ripening process, having um, some bananas close by or in a brown paper bag where that gas uh, helps to speed up the process. Great. And of course, avocados are not the least expensive item one could find. So, Oof. you know, losing one or two avocados can easily be $5 and that's a lot of money. <laughs> right. So <laughs> knowing, knowing how to do it and, and how to pay attention to them right now in this transition, uh, you had a sweet term for that. Was it loco something? What was the uh, first yeah, crop yeah. called? Mm -hmm. Good memory. Uh, we are just finishing up with the Flora Loca fruit. Oh. Um, so <laughs> there are three parts of the Mexican season. Flora Loca, which just wrapped up. Um, we're just now getting into the Aventajara uh, cycle of the Mexican season, um, which will see a little bit better eating quality and higher oil. Uh, fruit should ripen a little bit more evenly, but once we get into November... That's when we'll start to see the uh, fruit from the normal cycle of production, which is really when you get, you know, ex really avocados that eat really, really well out of Mexico with nice oil, kind of that real creamy, rich, uh, fantastic avocado experience. But uh -huh. uh, for now, the prices are going to be pretty high for this month. And then once we get into November, uh, more fruit will come on that will be better quality. So... Great. So for Thanksgiving, we're, we're heading into better and better and better avocado seasons as these exactly. th three are coming at us. Great. What varieties, um, just quickly, is it? Do does Mexico produce the same varieties that we are used to, like a, a Haas and a Pinkerton? And what are we seeing on the shelves? Yeah, out of Mexico, we really just get the Haas avocados. Mm -hmm. um, when we're here in California, we do get some of those Pinkertons and Fuertes and Reeds yeah. and... Um, the other avocados that can have some interesting different uh, flavors, a little bit more of a nutty profile. But out of Mexico, uh, we really just get the Haas avocados, which are what everyone's used to buying and, and loving. Great. And what you were saying about the California crop, um, that includes all these varieties, right? Pinkerton, Fuerte, Haas, Reed. The, the California growing season is over for all those varieties. Is that correct? Correct. 
Yep. Okay, um, wonderful. Good to know. Uh, to save a real dollar right now, pay an extra attention on your avocado. We are right in that transition. And California is pretty much done. If you still see a California one, eat it right away if it's not over already. Otherwise, the Mexican crop will need a little bit more attention, more time, and maybe some ripening at home. That's the golden rule from Christy. Thank you so much, Christy, <laughs> with you, all Helga. your knowledge. We'll have you back very soon. Okay, great. Thanks so much. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. And that's Christy Biddle, the buyer at one of the buyers at Earl's Organic Produce in this part of what's in season. And that wraps up another hour of an organic conversation. Rachel Carson, her legacy, the amazing work that keeps continuing year after year after year, all the way from the early 70s into now 2016. Thank you for that amazing book and the foundation for the environmental movement really to bloom. That's Rachel Carson in this hour on an organic conversation and also, of course, produce sustainable agriculture. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg, and we'll be back with another episode next week. I'll speak with you then. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thanks for listening. A big thank you to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family owned and operated since 1980. Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y wine.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at anorganicconversation. And our Twitter handle is talkorganic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here. Same place, same time next week. See you then. <laughs>